the eye of the prodigal. Never respect you while he lives it. Watch it all come around as I lay on the ground. Joffrey, Cersei, ill and pain a hound. They all think I'm lost, but I know where I'm bound. I'm the blood in the north when it all comes down. My word is my bond, and my bond is my word. Valar to Harris, all men must serve. See as a raven flies, and time slips by. Valar, my rulers, all men must die. Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast brought to you by Bald Move. We are the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's Game of Thrones television series. I'm your host, Aaron. The worst shit in the Seven Kingdoms, and I'm Jim. <laughs> you can find all of our content on baldmove.com. Tonight we're going to be talking about episode 403, Breaker of Chains. Uh, do you have any pre-show banter you'd like to get to, or are we just going to get right into this? Uh, I don't know. I mean... Do we want to talk about general thoughts up front? Is that something you like to do? Uh, I feel like I feel like that's instant cast stuff. Let's let's just move on to the main material. Okay, sure. Uh, the episode "Breaker of Chains" is directed by Alex Graves, who did last week's as well, and was written by David Benioff and Daniel Weiss, the double D's. It premiered to six point five nine million people, which is just about a t- tie for the season premiere, and certainly up about a half or uh, uh, three. Qu- a third of a million from last week, so ratings are remaining strong. Uh, we come right into the middle of the action, start off the episode immediately following. We still are so focused in on Joffrey's dead, bloated purple face. Sansa, uh, Sansa splits with Serdantis. The capital city is being shut down. They make their way to the water's edge just in time and rows her out to Littlefinger's ship, which laying in wait. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of ba- funny banter on Facebook between myself and Paul T and Jamie T about how is this the West is, is Littlefinger the Westeros equivalent of uh, Pete Campbell from Mad Men? Oh God, uh, why would you say that? Well, I think it's more like does he have his own Pete pit on Westeros? And I said no, he actually has a Pete ship. And it's appropriately dank and shrouded in mist and darkness. Yeah. Uh, Jamie T said, though, there's not enough disgusted outbursts from the Pete ship. We don't hear any, uh, we can hear you and any snotty shit like that coming from it. Uh huh. I don't know. He's, he doesn't seem, he's underhanded and conniving, but he's not greasy, in my opinion. Now, like, it's like, sure, he's a mass murderer and arguably an anarchist psychopath, <laughs> but he's still not as bad as Pete. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you think of this scene? Uh, I thought it was to really... start us off. I thought it was super interesting that we started off with something I don't think they've ever done before, which is to actually show something that happened last episode happening again. Um they showed, you know, Joffrey's bloated face. I think that's just complete fan service, right? Like, everybody wanted Joffrey dead. We got to see his bloated face last time. Let's show it one more time, and then we'll get to the action. Yeah, I mean, we come back, like, immediately during the aftermath. Like, I think in Ned's death, the episode cut to faded to black as soon as the sword severed his head. Uh-huh. And we came back immediately to, you know, the I mean, the second later, the aftermath of what happened to Arya... And we've we faded to black and had a battle sequence and then come back and the battle is kind of raging off camera and then we see the aftermath. But I don't know that we've literally ended the scene and began the, began the scene on the same scene yeah. for an episode. Okay. Uh, about the, uh, I guess, the rowing out to Littlefinger's ship, it seemed like they rowed for a really long time. Because when they leave and they're going under that archway, it is bright and sunny. 
And when they get there to the ship, it is dark and clouded in fog. Uh, I, I don't know. I, it seems also, though, that they are very close to potential enemies because Littlefinger is very concerned about noise, uh, which I thought was awesome. He's saying voices carry over water. Uh, yeah, they definitely do because Littlefinger has had influence from across the water. I think that <laughs> works in multiple ways. I think the problem is Sir Dantas is so drunk and so fat. It took him <laughs> 16 hours to row the 200 yards out to Littlefinger's ship. That's completely possible. Yeah. Like he, Lord Baelish is sitting there looking at his, you know, pocket sundial and tapping his feet and like, oh my God, he's rowing in circles. <laughs> oh, he's uh, watching he, him he, from he, the boat. He tipped over the boat six times and yet <laughs> and still had enough time for Sansa to dry off before he actually got there. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. Uh, no, I, I think that they're wanting to imply that the wedding was like late afternoon. Because it was kind of getting dusky as they pushed off, and then, you know, say he rode half a mile, that gets you to, I don't know how long that takes, or a mile. Uh, I don't know how far wa- sound travels over water, for that matter. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, I think the timeline just barely fits. Okay. Uh, some people were a little disappointed with Littlefinger's performance here. They thought he was a little hammy. Uh, did you get any of that watching it? Because I thought it was fairly good. I mean, Littlefinger has always seemed borderline on uh, busting out the bacon during a scene. I don't, I don't know that he yeah. ever really crosses it, um, in my opinion. But I could definitely see why people would think that he's a very, he has a lot of flourish in the way he talks and the way he moves, and I think you know that could be interpreted as overacting. I guess. I also think that he was. Maybe slightly hammier than usual because his audience was Sansa and Uh, he played, I I thought he played it slightly patronizing or maybe even extra patronizing uh, with her as contrast how he would treat, say, a Cersei or something like that. Sure. Anything else to talk about in this scene? No, it's fairly straightforward. They just kill the guy, so. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. Do you think Sansa is aware or or do you think that uh never mind i don't think i can i don't think i can ask this question without people accusing me of leading the witness so we'll just move on okay i mean maybe we should uh, talk a little bit then and i'll ask a question about that necklace um there's okay the definite implication there that Littlefinger killed joffrey i think um he obviously orchestrated the plot to get the necklace where it needed to be when he crushes that jewel what is that saying exactly? Is that saying, because I didn't see anything spill out of it. I just saw the jewel. I'm assuming like the jewel itself is a poison that can be crushed up and put in like dissolved in the wine or something. But I, I don't yeah, know I w- what he was actually was, saying there. I was curious about too, because when I saw him crush it, I was kind of half expecting to see like a puff of vapor come out or some yeah. corro- something corrosive or something to show us as the audience that, aha, this was this is a thing, but I think he crushed it as a demonstration that if this was a real gemstone and fairly heirloom, th- this is just cut glass. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you can't crush like a diamond or a ruby or an amethyst with the hilt of your sword casually like that. It's very a hard, dense material. Sure. So, so, so maybe that implication that he killed Joffrey is not there. Maybe the implication is just that he wanted her out of the city. But why go through all of that trouble? And at that moment, pull her out. He could have pulled her out much easier uh, during any other time, right? Well, 
so so there's i mean there's problems with all of the suspects the prime suspects uh okay. as you said that that little finger but you could say and it, we're kind of going to get into the next scene a bit with marjorie uh, talking with the uh, lady olena it would have been far more convenient to kill joff the next day after they'd consummated marriage if it was the tyrells marjorie would be unambiguously queen joffrey would be dead uh, I'm not sure what happens to the lines of succession, but at the very least, she'd be queen, you know, queen regent until probably Tommen came of age. I mean, again, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether she would just reign as queen forever because there, you know, there, there's no way to get issue, I guess, unless she was, she was, you know, got pregnant that one night. So yeah, it seems that there are question marks about a lot of the people that are possibly involved. It's same like Tyrion's talking about maybe Tywin did it. But, sure. you know, maybe because the control, uh, the more easily controlled Tommen. Um, yeah, I, yeah I I'm mean, really leaning towards Littlefinger just because the idea that Sansa is now married to Tyrion, Littlefinger obviously can't just take her and have that be that. Because, you know, you can't steal the wife of a lord or the wife of uh, whatever Tyrion is and get away with it. They're going to look for her. They're going to have people after him. Now, if Tyrion is labeled a, uh, a threat to the Lannisters and a betrayer of the kingdom, then that is much easier. So framing Tyrion makes a lot of sense for Littlefinger. Yeah, and it's, you know, being in Westeros, being a kinslayer, not just a kingslayer, but a kinslayer is one of the worst things you can be. So if he was executed as that, it's... would. You know, are the Lannisters still going to look for Sansa? That's my question to you. Tyrion gets framed. Uh-huh. Tyrion is dealt with. Tyrion is beheaded, has a trial, whatever. Do the Lannisters still come after Sansa Stark or do they let her go? Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm saying. I don't think they do come after Sansa at that point. She's still the rightful heir to the North. Okay. I mean, didn't didn't Tywin give away the North, though? I think he mentioned that was until uh, Tyrion's the, the, the he mentioned that uh, to Tyrion last season. That was until his son came to age. Okay. Anyway, interesting question. Uh, we talked about this next scene about uh, Marjorie saying, "You know, am I queen? Am I not queen? Uh, I've gone through two kings now. Am I cursed? Uh, what do you think about her? Or, well, what do you think about the Lady Olena? I think is even more telling." about her general demeanor and how she's acting about this whole thing. Um, l- looking at this episode as a whole, I really felt like she has kind of uh, a grip on power here other than Marjorie being married to whatever the, whoever the new king is, uh, which I guess is going to be Tommen, right? That's what it seems like, yes. Okay. Uh, so she has control or at least um, influence... Uh, with the Lannisters because she has a lot of money and I guess she's paying for a lot of stuff like the wedding, um, and, and a lot of stuff revolving around that. So, yeah, I mean, they've got money, manpower and food, all things, something that important. Need. Yeah. Something important when you're fighting a war and winter is coming. Sure. Absolutely. So she has a lot of power just in that. It seems like she, she said, don't press the issue right now about being the queen because, you know, this is a bad time to do it. Um, I, she has other hooks into this empire, and I think she's going to play that up pretty soon. All right, let's move on to the next scene, which is in, I believe we're still in the Sept of Baelor, 
getting her money out of the set. Tywin is immediately going to work on Tommen. He is attaching the strings at the <laughs> wrist, at the top of the head, at the ankle, yep. uh, learning how to, to play this puppet. Uh, under the guise of giving him this kind of history lesson, this king-making lesson mm-hmm. about what good kings need, you know, justice, strength, uh, holiness, and they finally settle on wisdom. I thought this was a great performance by Char- Charles Dance. Uh, I actually was pretty, fairly impressed with the kid they got playing Tommen. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, I was super impressed with everyone. I mean, Cersei, uh, she does a great job here. We We can see... You know, the moment where she realizes her power is slipping away and Tywin is taking control of it. Uh, there's, there's kind of this look that Tywin gives her as he shuffles Tommen off that says, yeah, I, I just took the king away from you. He's mine now. Yeah. I thought, uh, Alex Graves, a director, I read an interview where he called this, uh, Tywin's verbal kidnapping of Tommen. Yeah. And I thought that was a really great way to describe the scene. Absolutely. And it's not and I would just give, all about that either. It's He is also educating this kid. I mean, the kid needs to know what he doesn't know. So there's a little bit of guidance there as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's one of the brilliant things about Tywin. Um, he gives with one hand as he's taking the other. The trick is he's always, he's always taking more than he's giving, even if it doesn't look like it on, on, on first blush. And speaking of tricks, the scene opens up, and they're all standing there, and Tywin... Uh, speaks to his grandson and he has to tell him i'm not trying to trick you like in this very somber moment no one trusts tywin <laughs> because they know how good of a manipulator he is even tommen he's learned that yeah yeah i think it's not just that i think that it, it it's not just tricked like i'm you know verbally kidnapping you it's more like i'm not trying to make you look stupid yeah yeah uh because he's probably sat and seen him you know, talk to his mom and talk to his uncle slash father and talk to his other uncle who's not his father and even his brother and seen like, hey, I, I don't want to walk into that uh, withering hailfire verbal bullets. Sure. So it's kind of like, hey, man, I'm not trying to this isn't mean grandpa Taiwan. This is gentle trusting. You can sit on my lap, grandpa Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, which those two kind of merge every once in a while. Uh, I would give anything to hear Tywin explaining sex to Tommen. <laughs> uh huh. Can, can you imagine? It's like, what does a good lover need? <laughs> and he's like, String? You know, uh, he's like, Aegon the Unwise was said to have a member a foot long, but was he? And it's I just like just deep into the history and the politics of it. Yep. He and the socioeconomic ramifications and the importance of female orgasm. I just, I, I, I would love to see that. That would be brilliant. Yeah. That's coming up. Future episode. <laughs> that, that'll be in the, uh, the Blu-ray extras. For oh, season God. Four. So Jamie has a nice, I thought Jamie had a nice little moment with his son. Yeah. Uh, where he asks him, you know, are you okay? And hey, I'm going to take care of you. Though, if Tommen checks, uh, if he checks a scoreboard of, <laughs> uh, Kingslayer versus number of kings he was assigned to protect, I, I don't know that that would be exactly reassuring. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, but Jamie basically, I mean, let's just get right to the point. Jamie engineers a scene so he's alone with his sister. His sister said she wants him to kill, uh, Tyrion and then Jamie rapes her. Yeah. Now, there's been tons of controversy on the internet 
from a lot of different angles. There's book fans mad that this they see this as a substantive change from the books, where supposedly this scene is more consensual. There's uh, outrage uh, about the way that the implications of turning this from a quote-unquote consensual sex act to rape and what that means for the show's you know, sure. charges of misogyny that's, that's, that's lifted against us. Uh, I, I kind of want to spend five minutes or so talking about this. First of all, in your mind, is there any question that what we see here in this scene, no book knowledge, is rape? Absolutely not. Uh, no question about it. It is a rape. All right. Uh, let me read you some quotes from the people making this. Uh, Alex Graves, the director, said, Well, it becomes consensual by the end because anything for them ultimately results in a turn on, especially a power struggle. Did you get that it was consensual at the end? Um, no. No, I didn't. Uh, especially given the dialogue there where he, Jamie just says, I don't care over and over again. All right. Let me let me tell. Speaking of Jamie, uh, let me read you the actor Nicolaj uh, Coster Waldau. Uh, he who plays Jamie. His thoughts on the interview said it was tough to shoot. There's uh, is significance in that the scene and it comes straight from the books. It's George R. R. Martin's mind at play. It took me a while to wrap my head around it because I think that for some people it's just going to look like rape. The intention is. It's not just that. It's about two people who've had this connection for so many years, and much of it is physical, and much of it has to be kept secret, and this is almost the last thing left now. It's him trying to force her back and make him whole again because of his stupid hand. So is it rape? Yes and no. There are moments where she gives in and moments where she pushes him away, but it's not pretty. It's going to be interesting to see what people think about it. What the fuck? Again, I wasn't really... I wasn't mad about the scene and the the the, the change from the books, uh-huh. but if they were intending to make this look like maybe it starts off quote unquote rapey and sexual assaulty, but it turns into consensual sex, which we'll talk about here in a minute. I think they did a very poor job of getting that onto the screen. Yeah, if that's the intention, certainly. I don't think that. Uh, the actor who plays Jamie there was necessarily saying that it was consensual by the end. I think, uh, I, I think what he was saying is that Jamie was searching for something, uh, you know, to make himself whole again after losing his hand. And that can still definitely be a rape. I mean, that, that doesn't change the context of that scene. No, I, I agree with you there. I just, I'm not sure I like the way he describes it as well. It's, is it rape? Yes and no. Um, I think, yeah, so, I think so that's there's a, a lot of people. Of language. There's a lot of people that said, you know, this fundamentally changes Jamie's character. This is a betrayal of his character uh, to have him rape the woman that he loves. Do you believe that to be true? Oh boy. Um, Just as a book reader, from what you know, is this a be- was was this what you would call a betrayal of of uh, something that his character can't come back from? That he can't come back from. Um, it's. It's going to be difficult. I would need, if, if I were to lend him some forgiveness here, it would have to be made more apparent in future episodes that that was not just a rape. That, that somehow go back to that and let us know that Cersei was into it. Cause if not, yeah, that, that does cast a very different light on his character. I mean, the relationship they had before was a loving one as far as I could tell. And it was not one-sided like it is now. 
So I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to think of a scenario where they could kind of salvage that portion of Jamie. See, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, that's a lot of the book readers, um, contention is that, well, in the, in the beginning, it started, she was saying, no, please don't, you know, this isn't the right place. This isn't right. But by the end, she was like, oh, do me, Jamie. No. I need you inside me. In the book, et cetera, maybe. Et Not on screen. No, I'm saying in the book. Okay. I still think that that counts as rape. If, you, if you're if you a man in, in a suit of armor with a sword, and you're forcing yourself on a woman, and she's beating your chest and saying, no, this isn't right, I don't want to do this, and you continue to, to kiss her and fondle her and lift up her skirts... Regardless of what she thinks in the middle of the act, I think it's still rape. I mean, yeah. I, I guess the question I would ask is like, was Jamie going to stop? And in my mind, reading that scene, there's no way he stops. No, watching that scene, there, there's no way he would have stopped because I, I don't think she was into it. Uh, and but even if she was, like you said, I'd still think, you know, initiating the act in that way is definitely rape. Yeah, I mean, there's lots. I mean, it's very interesting, um, complicated topic because, you know, uh, I linked to some stuff in the Facebook thread where there's somewhere between five and 50% of women and some men that report achieving orgasm during a rape. Okay. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not rape. Sure. And it doesn't mean that they enjoyed it. Uh, there's also the fact that we're getting this, you know, in the series, in the show, we get it entirely as an omniscient third person. We're just watching this happen. In the, in the books, we see it through Jamie's head. Well, yeah. If he's raping his sister, he could just be seen as justifying, you know, this is the kind of, well, I could tell she wants a defense of rape, which is no defense at all. Okay. Um, I just think it's problematic to be like, no, Jamie wasn't a rapist in the books. He would never do that. You know, this is the man that tried to kill a child to get to keep getting what he wants. This is a man in the show that murdered his cousin uh, to get what he wants. Um, just because he does things that we like and think are cool does not mean that he is any. It, it still means he's I still think he's a dark gray character. Yeah, he definitely is. The The only reason I say that this fundamentally changes his character is because of the relationship that he had with Cersei before. And I know that relationship has evolved and changed over the past year or so uh, in Showtime. But it's, it seems like, th like I said before, they had a very different relationship that was loving. Um, and the idea that he would then destroy that by raping her is a fundamental shift in his character. And, and you have to throw out the books, or at least I, I discount like the idea that the books need to somehow inform the show. I think the show needs to stand on its own. And if it doesn't, it's a failure, uh, in my mind. So. No, totally agreed. Okay. So the idea that we kind of don't understand what's going on in this scene, I think is a slight failure. And this, I'm, I'm not saying that this is a badly done scene. What I'm saying is this is a very hard thing to get exactly right. Um, and if you have one thing off, it doesn't land like it needs to. And I think they might have just been missing a, a line, one line or something that could have let us know at the end that she was into it. Because as I see it on screen, it, it is not implied at all. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, uh, I don't want people to think that I think that this is something off limits. Like, I wouldn't be personally offended if he was raping Cersei and then she decided in the moment that she was into it. Okay. 
Uh, I think that's an atypical reaction to your, for, for for rape victims, but re- it's still rape. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Regardless of how you know her state of arousal or whatever, what was going on, it's I, I, to me it it it's still some it still represents you know a rape. And you know, like I said in the Facebook, you can't you can't start off raping and rape yourself to con- consent. I mean, that's the kind of shit that will get you sent to the wall, yo. <laughs> yeah, definitely. it will get you or the, or the county jail, whichever, you know, applies to your locale and, and country. Sure. Um, and I just feel like it's that's that's the thing. Like, I think it's a separate topic. What did the filmmakers attend? If they intend that to be kind of seen as semi consensual, I think it was a bad job. If they want it to be seen as straight up rape. And, and that's the thing. We don't I hate judging this and saying what it talks says about Jamie and Cersei until we see another couple three episodes to see where this takes us. Sure, yeah. You know, does it take us to the same place? It takes us to the books. Does it take it someplace different? They're doing enough of this kind of playing around that I honestly don't know. Yeah, um, and I do want to talk at the very beginning when this first starts. Cersei is the one who initiates a kiss uh, and a, a very very brief makeout session, and and then she turns away. And Jamie says, you're a hateful woman. Uh, why, why the gods made me love a hateful woman? Uh, that's where it needed to stop. Like, as far as, you know, Jamie forcing himself on her. Um, that to me was the end of her consent altogether. And it never came back. Yeah. I mean, there were moments where she seemed to maybe be pulling him toward her and then pushing him away and pulling him toward her. But at the end, she's saying, no, no, this isn't right. And she's, yeah. she's sobbing. I think yeah. that's the other thing is it's hard to say that she came around to the end when she is is sobbing on the floor and Jamie's having her, his way with her. Sure. And again, I don't I don't think it matters from a Jamie morality pur- purpose. I think Jamie, in my mind, um, by modern legal standards, which I know don't mean a shit for Westeros, but it does mean a shit for something for us as you know, 21st century readers. I think Jamie is a rapist in the book. I think Jamie is a rapist in the show. Um, is he a worst rapist in the show versus the books? I, I I don't know. I mean, I think uh, you know, people. I I've I see a lot of people talking on forums and on Reddit about you know gray lines and you know uh, uh, like objective standards of rape. And to me, uh, I think that's one of the big problems we have in this country and and in the Western world is that we haven't decided that. You know, rape is the lack of consent, period. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, a hundred no's can't turn into yes with a single statement. Uh, a silence can't be an implied yes. It's not up to you to decide if a person really wants it or not. And this is men and women, you know, cause, cause men get raped too. Sure. I think that kind of anything short of enthusiastic consent is, uh, it, it, you're flirting with raping someone. And that's not something, like I said, that, that can get you sent to the wall. So, sure. um, do we, do you feel like we've covered this? I think and we again, have. And yeah. again, we have to wait until the next couple of weeks to see how this all plays out in the show and whether this was a real debacle from a filmmaking standard or not. But, you know, from a storytelling perspective, I think the jury is still very much out. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, we get back to the next scene of Arya needling, uh, no pun intended, the hound about where they are, if they're lost, where they're going. Uh, in the midst of this bickering, a farmer comes up, asks him what they're doing, find out this is his land, and Arya makes up a lie on the spot about her being the hound's daughter and gets him in, uh, that they're, the, the, they're, 
the hound is a man who fought for House Tully. Farmer's sympathetic. He invites him in and gives him food, sets up a labor arrangement with the hound, gets backstabbed or I guess backhanded. What do you what do you there's here's another scene where we have a person we are heading towards sympathy for do something kind of villainous. What's your thoughts on it? Um yeah, I it it definitely takes this uh feel good kind of buddy stuff that was happening and turns it on on its head cuz I feel like he not only betrayed the guy but he betrayed Arya as well. She she viewed him in a very different light. Uh, as a different kind of person, someone with an honor and a moral code. And he kind of just, he betrayed her by proving that he's not that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it feels like he's been lying to her this entire entire time. And he says, I wasn't a thief. Well, yes, you were in your heart. You, you would have killed and stolen from innocent people. Uh, you just hadn't been presented with an opportunity. But we know he was presented with an opportunity to fall in with... Uh uh, his brother's group and yeah. do a bunch of pillaging and stealing and what, you know, reaving whatever his heart's content. I mean, you say he's lying to Arya, but I, I feel like he's lying to himself as well. The question well, he is, would have why? Had to, he would have had to be part of the King's Guard, or not King's Guard, but the, the force protecting the king again in order to do that. And that's something he opposes, right? Or. I mean, that's a good point. Or do you think he was afraid of getting, going back with the king's men and being found as a deserter? Sure. That's eventually, he's like, well, if I stay with these guys, it's going to be a short term before my brother comes back and kills me, or I'm brought up on charges for desertion, or somehow I'm going to lose my head. So your, your theory is it's not that he was opposed to their mission. It's just, it wasn't the right, right time and place for him to put that in course in action. Yeah. I think, I think that's part of it. I think. There's also this weird affinity that he has for Arya, and we see a little bit of it in this scene where he, you know, he tells her what his plans might be after getting paid for returning her or for ransoming her. Um, that's not something you do with somebody you don't give a shit about. So th- there's a weird affinity for Arya, and I feel like his main mission at this point is to get her back safe and, you know, get paid in the process, but get her back safe. We had a really strong take from Janine S., um, which I'm going to go ahead and read now rather than putting a pin in it and talk about it later. Okay. Um, she goes, here's my theory that's possibly off um, about why we see the Hound be much more brutal and apparently thoughtless in this episode. Once Ari gets her own horse, it seems like he's a bit colder. She theorizes that he really craves human company and contact. He realizes mm-hmm. that he's not going to make it to the Erie through the mountains and the hill tribes and all that and how... Uh, Arya can just ride off anytime she wants to and stands as much chance of catching her as he does, as she does getting away. You know, it's horse versus horse at that point. So my guess is that he just goes back to this very pragmatic view of life plus a short, a shot of anger and frustration about no longer having this person who depends on him physically and in other ways. And you have Sandor being a bit of an ass in Arya's view, but just reverting back to his previous way of being. I'd imagine his internal dialogue going something like this. Well, she's not going to stay with me now that she has her own horse, so fuck her bloody. She can see what I'm really like. Just go. Don't try to save me because you won't like what you've saved. Hmm. I think you really wanted to be that protector to Sansa as well. The valiant knight, even though he hates that term, he could really get her home. And he also wants physical contact with people. Um, not sex, just physical contact without revulsion. Sometimes yeah. when people are physically scarred like he is, the touch of someone 
uh, or the thought of someone touching them in a kind and non-judgmental way is enough. It's sad to consider, but I think about that as t- with Tyrion as well. That these are two extremes, kind of the same side. What do you think of that theory? I think that's pretty solid. I like it. Uh, it it makes him seem, uh, you know, not as tough as he presents, which is kind of a good thing to mix that a little bit in with the character who seems so tough uh, on the outside. But also, I I can't argue with the logic that you know he's scarred and he kind of craves this attention from people. Uh, and I guess in the form also, of physical touch. I don't know. I also think that. Because this got my mind uh, going, too, because this is playing out a little differently from the book. It could be that, you know, now that she's got her ho- horse and she sees that he's kind of formidable, uh, that he and he's taken her to this place where it is dangerous. They could both get themselves killed. It could be a little bit of the same thing Tyr- you know, Tyrion did to Shay last episode where he just kind of really showed her the awful side of him, yeah. kind of her deepest, darkest fears, as and kind of to encourage you to get the hell out while you still can. Do you think it's possible that the Hound is intentionally trying to drive Arya away? Because if Arya hadn't woken up during that scuffle, do you think he would have just taken off and been gone? It's not like he was going back to the barn to grab her. Yeah, that's true. That's an interesting point. Uh, he was just walking off, right? It looked like it. Huh. That's strange. I, that really conflicts with the kind of affection that we see at the beginning of this scene. True. But again, if he's really has affection for her, does he want to ransom her off to his aunt? I mean, I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, it's maybe like kind of a blend Arya of Janine's theory and mine here. Maybe her being turned in is not a good thing for her. You know, right now, nobody knows where she is. Tywin doesn't know where she is. Uh, if he wanted to get her his hands on her, that would be a lot easier if she showed up somewhere. Right. Yeah. Anyway, something that was running through my mind. Uh, moving on, we go to the wall and uh, we see that people think Sam is a liar, or at least seems that's be the common theory. Well, before or can, common help. Can we go back to that scene real quick? Because there's there's a lot Certainly. of stuff that happens at that table that I wanted to talk about. Um, okay. It seemed like the betrayal of this guy, the, the, you know, beating to the head and stealing his silver was foreshadowed because they're talking about, you know, Walter Frey and the Red Wedding. And he says that Walter Frey offered them guest right. Um, right. And that, that he broke that. And, and the hound is saying guest right don't mean much anymore. And that's, you know, foreshadowing of what happens here because this guy is offering him a place to stay and food, um, and fair pay, fair wages for fair work. And the Hound just totally betrays him, just the same way that Walter Frey did, you know? It's it's a reverse of the Red Wedding, yeah. where the guest rose up and struck down the host. Uh-huh. It's the Red Farm. <laughs> the Red Farm. Uh, and he also says at the end of that, the gods will have their vengeance. And I'm worried about the Hound getting killed uh, and getting his vengeance for his actions. Well, it's a mildly interesting take, Jim. <laughs> did you have anything else? Okay, no, I did not. Okay, um, where are we going? Oh, yes, north of the wall. People think Sam's a liar about being the Slayer. Um, we see him with Gilly. He wants to turn her away to Molestown because he's af- afraid that she'll be basically raped. Speaking of uh, uh, getting our, our rooting priorities straight, the Night's Watch that we admire so much, the vast majority of them, uh, according to this guy's keeping records, are raper- rapists and horse thieves. Sure. We got the smattering... 
you got the smattering ninth son here and there, but it's mostly rapist horse thieves or horse thief rapists. Well, I mean, ninth, uh, ninth born son gets roughly the same amount of respect as thieves and rapers. Yeah, no, the the, the Night's Watch is is a, is a rough organization. Just yeah. in case you've forgotten, uh, I thought it was interesting that Sam wants to protect her. She's afraid that he's bored with her. Yeah, like. You know, growing up with in Craster's Keep where her father, you know, uh, her father's father husband didn't give two shits about any of his wives because he had lots more and he can he can make more anytime he wants. It's it's almost like an alien concept that someone would be trying to protect her. She just thinks he's done and he wants she wants she's being discarded. Yeah. Uh, Ethan, anything else to talk about uh, regarding this scene? Nah, it's pretty straightforward. Okay, going to Dragonstone, which is Stannis' home base. Uh, speaking of Stannis, he uh, delivers a message to Davos that we find out Joffrey's dead, and he's pissed. He's pissed that another usurper is dead, apparently by his Red Woman's magic, and he's got no fleet and no men to take advantage of the situation. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about this scene. What did you think? Well, he doesn't even have enough men to raid a pantry, so that's a pretty bad situation here. Uh I classic Stannis. I, I thought, is there a Monty Python's Holy Grail reference here? <laughs> How so? With the Knigets? I the only uh, time I've ever heard knights pronounced that way is in that movie. Uh, y- yeah. I uh, there was at least one person emailed me, and I think someone on Facebook mentioned made that connection too. Okay. Uh, so it could be a sly nod towards that, but it's also an honest mispronunciation. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a weird thing about our English language that we got knives and knigets and swords. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it could it could be. Okay. Uh I did notice here that Bravos seems to be the focus of a lot of this episode. There's a lot of mention of Bravos. This is one of the the first times I really remember it being focused on. Uh Arya wants okay. to go there for her friends later on, uh once once she gets back. Um that's where the Iron Bank is. That's where Davos is going to get his army from, obviously. It, after the second viewing, this these uh, series of scenes made much more sense to me. Uh, and I completely understood why Davos is writing to the Iron Bank. Uh, it, it all just makes so much sense. He needs an army. Um, the Iron Bank is probably willing to fund the enemy of the Lannisters because, you know, they're way in debt and they can't pay it off. So it makes a lot of sense. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no, I don't think so. I really like Stannis' quote about, I will not be a page in someone else's history book. I thought that was a really strong line. Yeah. Uh, we go back to the wall. We see Sam rides Gilly in the Moles Town, and holy shit, do we see some rough, rough looking whores. Yeah, and uh, Axel Rose, uh, comes up and asks if she's a wildling. Oh, really? I, th- I thought that was Latrine from Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> uh, yeah, they both look <laughs> roughly the same. Uh, yeah, uh, it seems, do you think Sam had some second thoughts about basically taking her to ye old, uh, pirate hooker town? Yeah, I think he did. It doesn't seem like she's much safer here either, especially when people start asking about her being a waddling. Oh, not, yeah, so it's like people could slit her throat and just because of the hatred for wildlings. Yep. Uh, we also, when we see, you know, a little bit later... The wilding rampage going on on south of the wall settlements. Shit, man. What, what do you think that could mean for Molestown? 
it could be bad news. I mean, it looks like the Night's Watch is not going to go in there and stop them. So, I don't know. Yeah, I'm scary. I'm super interested to see how they end up resolving uh, this little conundrum. Also, there's uh, the again. idea of of fair wages for fair work. I mean, she gets propositioned immediately to be a whore, right? True. And Sam doesn't want that, and he says no other work, but who knows how that's going to play out. And here's the thing. like, So I'm not into slut shaming, and I'm not into judging prostitutes and people that trade you know, a fair, fair, fair work for fair wages. Uh huh. Gilly, who's probably never had consensual sex in her entire life. What do you think if one of these, uh, if Axel Rose came up and said, Hey, you know, you can get a silver stag for spreading your legs. Do you think Gilly'd be like, I never, or do you think she'd be like cha-ching? Uh, that's a fair question. Given her history, I want to say she should, she would be like, I never, but I, I don't know. I just don't know. I just, yeah, I mean, I just feel like uh, she probably has a different view of sex than Sam does, who is a virgin. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. I just think that's interesting uh, on many levels about Sam, what Sam is trying to protect her from versus what, uh, you know, might have end up happening. And I'm kind of in the dark here because this is something where they're coloring outside the lines of, of the show again. So, okay, who, cool. who knows? Um, going on to a mass orgy in King's Landing in the Br- Lannister brothel. It's it's woman on woman, man on man, man on woman. Uh, <laughs> I did not see any goats or or horses, but that could be in their next room over. I was worried Tywin uh, was going to get on the action when he walked in. <laughs> yeah, Tywin seems like he's missed at least half the world's pleasures. <laughs> Probably, if not all of the Probably. world's pleasures. He might be like a missionary only guy, so he's just giving a sliver. Yep. Uh, it's yeah. You know, it's also very straightforward to him. It is not straightforward to Prince Oberon. Uh, I actually, it's fun, funny because I actually totally buy the bisexual pitch. Like you got good looking dudes, you got good looking girls. Why are you just limiting yourself from one side of the aisle? Uh-huh. But I, ju- I'm just like I just never acquired the taste for sausage. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> sure, it's it's it, it, mentally it makes a lot of sense. Um. So yeah, as you mentioned, Taiwan makes a visit, uh, points out not too subtly that the uh, prince has studied poisons at the Citadel. Uh. C- the prince doesn't really deny his involvement in any possible plot. He's more kind of like making fun of Tywin. Yeah. But then Tywin says, hey, I categorically de- deny, categorically deny my involvement in your sister's death. It's all the mountain. And I can arrange you a meeting with this mountain if you help me uh, with this matter involving my son and being a judge on the trial. Yeah, this seems all too convenient, right? And there's almost like a smile on Tywin's face when he says categorically. Uh, I don't know that I totally buy it. And the idea that you would set up a meeting with the guy who actually did the killing, uh, I think that meeting is going to turn violent immediately because he knows it was physically the mountain who killed her. Uh, I don't, I think it's a very good way to take out the guy who knew that you gave the order and then you get off the hook scot-free. I'm not totally buying that he didn't have anything to do with it. That's an interesting theory. Uh, what he gets, what he stands to get is if he sits on as a judge on Tyrion's trial, that not only does he get the introduction with the mountain, but Tywin's going to offer him uh, a position on the small council, basically a, a presidential cabinet position 
something that uh, would be prestigious, and it's been a while since Dorne has had that kind of power in King's Landing. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to talk about in this particular scene? I don't think so, no. All right. Uh, we stick in King's Landing, but this time we go down to the black cells, or I don't think they're black cells because I saw a window. They're, they're some, somewhat not as shitty as uh, Ned's cell. Uh, as uh-huh. befits, I guess, his, his station as a Lannister prisoner. But he's still in a cell. It still looks pretty. He's still shitting in a bucket at the end of the day. And uh, we see Pod comes and visits him, tries to supply him with some food and provisions, and they talk. Uh, he finds out that he's been assigned a trial of three judges. He finds out who those three judges are, which, if you weren't paying attention, is going to be his father, Mace Tyrell, and Prince Oberon, we assume. He wants to call Sansa. Sansa's not there. He didn't know about that. He wants to see Bronn. Bronn's kind of a, accused as a known associate, and he's being barred from seeing him. Might get to see Jamie, and then Pod confides that they've been trying to offer him a knighthood to inform on him. Yeah. Let's talk about this scene. Okay. I wanted to start by talking about uh, the connection between Jamie, Bronn, and Tyrion. They obviously won't let Tyrion speak with Bronn. They say that. They might let him speak with Jamie. Now, last episode, they introduced Jamie to Braun. So I'm wondering if they didn't do that intentionally, setting up this next episode where now there is a connection between those two. And if Tyrion can get to Jamie, he can also get to Braun, and they might work together to somehow help him out. It's I know it's theory. mildly interesting. <laughs> it's mildly interesting. Uh, how? What kind of assistance do you think Braun could offer? Uh, I'm not sure. I I know he could kind of, uh, he's good at getting into the shadows uh, in places, and Jamie can work in the light. So I think together they could be a formidable team, but I don't know what form that takes. All right, solid. Well, I, I thought it was a fairly good performance. Um, I really like the uh, character of Podrick. Uh, I like that he's kind of loyal to Tyrion, but Tyrion is not going to use that against the boy. He wants him to save himself. And yeah. tells him to, you know, basically get the fuck out. And then as the door closes, he's like, oh, wait, what did you do to those whores that made you so popular? <laughs> and it was just too late. The door was already shut. He didn't hear him. Yep. Uh, we go back just south of the wall where uh, a northern folk village is utterly sacked by the combined wildling thin army. And it's it's just slaughter. And Would you say it was like a sack of potatoes? It was, a, it was, they were carved up like so many potatoes. Uh, was it uncomfortable to see, for you to see uh, people that we have had affection for, like Egret and Tormund, uh, killing innocent civilians? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit in the instant cast. I've never really seen them as particularly redeemable people. So hmm. for me, it was not that big of a shock. Uh, maybe because I didn't have much of a connection to Jon Snow in past seasons and my only connection to egret was through him so i didn't really care much about that but yeah that's how i viewed it i i already thought of them as kind of bad people hmm all right well that's interesting uh i to me it was a little you know when you see this this kid's father be brutally murdered and you pan up and it's obviously egret i'm like wow damn you know you'd kind of gotten this well the wildlings are just you know some decent people on the other side of the wall, uh, you know, there's, they're the same as kind of the people that we've been rooting for. And that's probably true because it's not like, 
they're not doing anything that the Lannisters and even the northern armies like the Starks and Bolton armies are not doing to the north and the Riverlands anyway. Yeah, I true. mean, it's 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 bad news all around. So I guess maybe this is just yet another challenge to my preconceived notions of good and good and evil. Uh, but the poor, the uh, aforementioned poor kid is spared so he can go north to tell the crows about, uh, you know, what, what an asshole the thins are. Yeah. Uh, we go back up north. We find out, you know, we've speculated, but uh, Master Eamon says that there's less than a hundred men and that's counting guys like him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, amongst, amongst the men. Uh, I thought, Sir Alistair set up a pretty interesting trap for John when there was a debate amongst the brothers about, you know, should we go south and meet this threat, this wildling yeah. threat? Uh, and he's like, well, you're a champion of the common people. What do you think? And John basically said, hey, we got we to gotta man this wall because if we fail, there's nothing to stop these 100,000 wildlings. They're, they're, it's a 1,000 it's a miles before they'll meet an army that can even hope to stop them. Yep. Uh, what do you think of this scene? Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Uh, he didn't, uh, despite maybe, uh, being a little naive, I guess he's, he's becoming less so. Uh, he didn't fall into that trap and he kind of didn't, he, I guess took Alistair's side, right? I mean, that's what yeah. he wanted to do. So I guess maybe he wasn't expecting that out of Jon Snow. No. But it seemed to make the most sense, I think. And then when we find out uh, Dolores, Ed, and Grin, they finally escape from mutineers up at Craster's Keep, I thought it lended extra strength to his words, like, we got to go ride north and kill them all, because yeah. he he made a decision that Thorne agreed with and was kind of, like, surprising. And then he's making the statement that's also kind of surprising and more like classic Jon Snow, and he then, you know, explains, like, no, you don't understand but the only reason that we haven't been attacked now is because they're afraid that we got a thousand men here. They find yeah. out we're in as bad a straits we are. It's 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 doomsday. Yeah, that's where the scene really turned for me. Where I I really enjoyed it is when he he's smart enough to know. I mean, he's he's becoming a lot more like his brother. Very st- strategic, um, sometimes very bold, and I like that. Hmm. Well, I wonder who he'll marry to fuck it all up then. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Which is, uh, yeah, it's not about justice. I, I fucking love his accent. Uh, anything else to talk about here before we go across the narrow sea to see what Danny's been up to in Marine? Let's go. All right. They've, they've marched 163 miles and presumably cut down and buried 163 children. They get to the gates of Marine and Marine looks pretty badass. It's pretty a formidable city, a lot noticeably stronger and more advanced than uh, you know, Karth or Yunkai. Yeah. They send out a champion from the gates, a single combatant. I don't know. I, they talk about this a lot in the books. I never get this because Neither do I. is there an army? I mean, is there an army alive that's going to be like, well, you beat our guy. I guess we'll open the gates and let you sack us or the converse. Well, you beat us. I guess we'll just take our massive siege engines that we've built and go home. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. It is. I mean, if he goes out there and he gets killed, like you said, they don't just open the gates. They're like, well, fuck, that didn't work. I guess we have to fight now. Hmm. It's, but you know, it's interesting because I don't, maybe shit like that did work. Cause I was, I was been reading a lot about Mongol history and you won't believe how many fucking times it worked for Genghis Khan to be like, Hey, uh, open up your gates and we'll spare you. If you make us lay siege, we're going to kill every last one of you motherfuckers. Yeah, true. 
open up the gates, they kill every last one of the motherfuckers. City after you would think that word would spread like, you know, these guys are liars. Like, you know, you're going to get killed either way. So you might as well fight or flee or run or do something. Yeah. Uh, word doesn't spread very fast in the ancient world. So maybe you can get away <laughs> with uh single single combat deception. I don't know. There's also the idea uh, of sparing casualties on all sides. And I don't know that these people are noble enough to uh, even consider that concept. But I remember a Star Trek episode where. There's a very uh, advanced planet, and these two uh, sides, these two factions were fighting, and they didn't actually fight. What they would do is they would say, okay, well, we we played out this war, and here's, like, the number of people would, who would die, so we have stand-ins that we're going to kill in place of those millions and millions of people. We're going to kill a few right. to to kind of keep the peace here. Yeah, I mean, I do, you do hear that in fiction and like, you know, the single combat here in Westeros. It just seems like the, the temptation to renege is massive. For sure. And knowing human, human nature the way I do, it just seems like that would never in actuality, even in that Star Trek scenario. I think the very first time that they ran the simulations and the one guy, the other side lost, it'd be like, fuck you. We're going to fight anyway. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, Danny wants, this guy's screaming and yelling, he's pissing on their battle lines, Danny wants someone to shut him up, all her captains volunteer, but she's all, she's got a, a valid excuse to dismiss them all, uh, including, uh, Jora, who gets friend-zoned hard, man, she calls him my dearest friend, and you can see his heart, what's left of it, break into <laughs> another million pieces, ouch. Uh, but Dario, uh, Dario doesn't give a fuck and he's not a general or a king's guard or a captain or a trusted anything. So he steps up and says, let me kill this man for you. Uh, and then proceeds to do so. Did night, did, did Sir Nyquillis, uh, redeem himself a bit in your eyes in this episode? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Um, it's, <laughs> it's weird that Danny doesn't have enough affection for him to say, well, you're, you're valuable to me too. No, she's just like, all right, if you want to go up there and fight him, go for it. Uh, but yeah, he, he was much cooler in this episode. He had some better stuff to do other than just hold a sword, uh, with both of his hands. I, I like him a little bit more now. That wink was pretty good. That was yeah. some old school Dario. I feel like I need, anytime that he's boring, I need to assign him like a set amount of winks and leers. Like in confession, you'd be assigned uh some uh our fathers and hail marys like you need i need five winks and three leers <laughs> awesome. uh, for me to buy you as a character here buddy yep uh but yeah i mean the single combat was pretty cool he basically single-handedly slayed this guy's horse and took his head off and dismayed the entire city of uh, marine then danny screams uh improbably loud to be overheard by the entire city that hey this is between me and the masters. I want to set you all free. And here's proof of what I've done. And she launches barrels full of their ch- their former chains into the city. The slaves pick them up. You can see light bulbs turn on. And the masters seem to be a little bit nervous. Yeah, this is uh, really the only possible strategy that works here, right? They don't have the ability to siege this city. Uh, she's got to work from within. And I think that's a super effective strategy here. Yeah, I mean, they do have catapults. Yeah, but um, come on. <laughs> What's that going to do? <laughs> it it looks like a tough city. It looks like a tough nut to crack. I'm not I'm I'm not going to lie. Yeah. 
So do you, where do you think this is going? Internal slave revolt, re, re, revolt or? Yeah, that'd be my guess. Next episode, we come back and there's a lot of fighting with 200,000 slaves, uh, rising up against their masters. Do you think they'll actually show, uh, the hypothetical battle or is it going to be another one of these smash cut to CGI smoking city and Jorah talking about it was just as you said, the slaves rose up and <laughs> I hope we get to see a little bit of it at least. All right. Well, that's all we got. That's uh, where we fade to black for this episode. Uh, get a little bit of uh, paying the bills, and we'll move on to feedback. Of course, we are part of the Bald Move Network, and we do all the television coverage. Sans, well, not all of it. Tom and Kelly help us out with uh, Downton Abbey and Mr. Selfridge and basically everything. Masterpiece Theater and BBC. Uh, but we do a lot of it. We've got, uh, we, we started a new episode, a series of episodes on Fargo. If you like the FX series, you could, should check that out. We're also currently doing Mad Men. Uh, we're all supported, uh, by our listeners. There's a couple ways you can help us out. Uh, one is going to subbable.com, S-U-B-B-A-B-L-E.com. And, uh, it's a voluntary subscription service. You can pledge a one-time amount or a small amount. Uh, like a dollar a month and it'll be automatically contributed to, to productions of our podcast. And when I say a dollar a month, I'm not like saying that's like a joke amount. Ha ha. If everybody that listened to our podcast chipped in a buck a month, holy shit. Holy shit. Game changer. Total game changer as far as the way Jim. Dollars. <laughs> 85. I mean, think about how many big, I think of how many, uh, bottles of whiskey that would provide and like, <laughs> you know, Five or six, at least, right? Sure, because we drink drink it, it, the cheap stuff, so we wouldn't have to be making this, uh, you know, trucker hooch out of Jim's toilet. Uh, <laughs> be total game changer. There's a lot of fun. The other the cool thing about it is you can save up this money to earn uh, rewards and 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 uh, stuff like you know, free T-shirts and other memorabilia. Uh, we got a couple of bites on some of the top tier things. One of the things is you can commission us to do a custom podcast about any. Um, set of television episodes or even a movie that you'd like. And we've had two nibbles on that in the past week, and that'll be coming out uh, probably in the next month or two. That's pretty exciting. Um, but check it out, subbable.com slash baldmove. And you can also support us, of course, by using our Amazon link at amazon.baldmove.com. You know the deal. Anything you buy on there gets our hands on some filthy, filthy lucra, Luke, lutra, whatever. Uh, also ratings, reviews on iTunes. We appreciate them. And you guys have been heroes on that front because we are dominating the TV and film categories on iTunes. And we've even gotten into the top 25 of just iTunes podcast period. And that's huge. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's all due to your guys' ratings and reviews and subscriptions. Uh, check out our affiliates, uh, personal arrogance and the cause show. Uh, holding down the beer, board games, uh, and pop culture and women's issues, sexuality, relationships, respectively. Uh, I think we're ready. I think that's it. I think we're ready to do feedback. Did I miss anything, Jim? Uh, no, then I think we're ready to move on. All right. First feedback from Nick B says, Hey, fellas, respectfully think. Oh, this is from that last week's podcast, by the way. I think you may have misinterpreted last week's stare down between Cersei and Brienne. On first viewing, I might have agreed with you that Brienne was caught or even realized belatedly that she loves Jamie. But on second and subsequent viewings, Nick, if you think I'm going to read your email dashing my fervent Jamie Brian fanboy shipping, you're <laughs> absolutely right. 
because I think it's pretty clear, continues Nick, especially from Gwendolyn Christie's expression, that Brienne in that moment is realizing that, yes, Jamie and Cersei are incestuous lovers. Bump, bump, bump. Interesting. Cersei accuses Brienne of loving Jamie, and Brienne's face lights up when she realizes why Cersei's that concerned about it. This is why she turns and gives Jamie a strange look and why he looks troubled when he sees his sister talking to Brienne. It's also why she seems to stare into Cersei and cuts off the conversation with a curt your grace before walking off. The conversation is a subtle mirror of the conversation between Jamie and Sir Loras. Essentially, the show is telling us that an incestuous affair, incestuous affair is not just a rumor anymore. It's an open secret. Uh, damn it. I find it hard to argue against that. Yeah, the trouble is I also find it hard to argue against the other interpretation. I think... The scene is wide open enough that you could attribute that either way. And without, like, book knowledge, it's impossible for me to say which one is right. Hey, I got book knowledge, and I'm saying it's impossible to tell which one is right. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, and shit, maybe that's a spoiler. I don't know. I, I never can tell. Some people's like, don't say anything. But I, it's, it's something that uh, is hotly contested. Uh, so... Let's move on to Tyler S. and says, I'm not sure why uh, Sam thought Gilly would be safe in Molestown since you know the, the wildlings are moving north, sacking every town they pass. According to the books, Molestown is mostly underground, but I don't remember them making them that clear in the series. Although having Gilly in Molestown might make things more interesting when the wildlings do eventually get there. Uh, it is my understanding that Molestown has an underground component, but that's mostly used during the winter? Maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's the imp impression I got hmm. that it's like it gets cold and you get 80 feet of snow and you just pretty much burrow in and there's the name Molestown. But I think we talked about the danger of Gilly in there, so we can probably move on. Jim, do you agree? Sure. Yeah. Brent in Georgia says, do you think uh, he had just mentioned or Davos had just mentioned about the gold barges full enough of gold to fund the kingdom and that he and Stannis were just mentioning the lack of army due to gold that he was or is considering looting such a barge to fund the war. Perhaps the letter is meant to somehow force a barge to be sent somewhere so it can be looted. Jim, do you see a barge heist in Davos's future? <laughs> well, I'm sure that would be a series of awesome scenes. I think it's far more likely he's asking for help. If, if he really wants to get their attention, that seems like the last thing you would want to do before a barge heist. I mean, with my extensive barge heist experience and all. Uh, I, although I don't know if it's going to be gold, it might be an ocean of methylamine that he ends up stealing. <laughs> yep. Uh, the only thing I'd add fuel to this fire, this, this, uh, tinfoily fire is there was that, that preceded a conversation about the subtle differences between smuggling and piracy. Ah, true. All right. Moving on to John K says upon watching the last episode, I was very disappointed in decisions made for the scene with Jamie and Cersei, even well, John K, you just had a little bit of dry pie. I don't know if you can feel your throat constricting, uh, but uh, unfortunately, you've passed out purple dead at her feet. Uh, I think we we considered that. We, we we spent probably even too much time talking about that. We did, a lot. Moving on to, Yard, moving on to Yardley H., I think the reason they changed this – well, well, another victim of dry pie. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's an epidemic. I don't know why you guys keep shoveling in your faces when you see what's happening to people. Uh, ben G. says, is it just me or is Littlefinger's acting completely over the top and ridiculous? I felt – Honestly, like he was transplanted uh, from a Game of Thrones parody or at least a porno. I alluded to the people having a problem with his performance. I want to give Gene Benji here a little credit for uh, being one of those guys. You and I seem to be on the same page that we are liking. We are we are loving smelling what the little finger is cooking. Yeah, I feel like that's just who his character is, and I'm okay with it. 
He was kind of, you know, his other character, uh, Aiden's character in The Wire, was kind of blowhard smarmy, too. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. He gives good blowhard. Uh, Jeanine Essa, did anyone else think it's a little creepily ironic that this episode aired on Easter? Let's have a nice holy day in the real world and a little incestuous rape and robbery in uh, Restaurus. Is there uh, any blasphemy going on here, Jim? Uh, it's hard to say. I don't, I don't think so. I doubt they know when these shows are going to air as they're making them and as they're writing them. So probably not. And honestly, when you think about it, it's really Jesus's fault for being resurrected on 420. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you didn't want to, if you didn't want to make it a debauchery, pot smoke filled holiday, then, you know, take four days off instead of just three. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. Speaking of blasphemy. Uh, Sheem says, how old is Thomas supposed to be in the series compared to the books? He's taller than Cersei and looks at least 16 in the books. Uh, I think he's supposed to be a small child. I'm, I know the new Tommen also played one of the kid Lannisters killed by the Karstarks, but they could have used someone younger, I think. Um, hmm. I, how old do you think this kid is? If I had to guess, I'd say maybe 13. That's what I was thinking too, which... Uh, is quite a bit older than the, it's, it's, it's similar to the age difference between Bran in the books versus Bran in the series and kind of their theme of aging everyone up to make everything a little less creepy and gross. Yeah. So, and I think that will have some implications on his character. In fact, let me make a note to talk about that in the spoiler section, but I'm not terribly worried. And the kid seems like, um, I'd much rather him just, I'd much rather them recast him with something they knew and someone that they, are comfortable with and someone that they thought could carry the weight necessary for the role mm -hmm. than to just, you know, bring on a new person just cause. Yeah. I'm with you. And there ain't a lot of eight year olds that can act. I don't know if you noticed that. I have noticed that. Yeah. There are a lot of them that might think they can, but no, uh, Tack L said, uh, want to play the name game with us on breaker of chains. And it's impressive. Uh, I don't know if you want to call bullshit on any of these, but he's got like 12 different ways that Breaker of Chains comes into play here. Holy shit. Uh, the okay. most, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a lot. The most obvious, the most obvious one being Khaleesi and Marine. All right. I buy that. Uh, little, little finger breaking Sansa's chain from the Lannisters. Okay, good. Uh, Marjorie Tywin and the realms, uh, breaking the chain from Joffrey. Uh, okay, we're starting to stretch the chains a little bit. Start Starting to get on a thin branch here. Uh, Sam Tarley's chain of responsibility is broken to Gilly. Uh, yep, yep, we're, we're still walking out on that branch. Sir Danto's chain of serving Littlefinger. Uh, the necklace? No, I think he's talking, he's talking, he's sticking with metaphorical chains, although, Tack, he forgot, I mean, Littlefinger literally, literally broke. Uh, Sir, Sir Dantos's chain. Yeah, he did. I'm surprised he missed that one. Uh, Tyrion breaking his, I'm not going to stop for the rest of these. Tyrion breaking his chain from Podrick. Sir Davos trying to break Stannis' chain to Melisandre by contacting the Iron Bank of Bravos. Tywin breaking his chain of responsibility to, uh, Aelia's death and blaming it all on the mountain. Sansa, uh, with Littlefinger, Tyrion in chains, Oberon with the Lannisters and the Iron Bank. Um, I don't even think those last four were a serious attempt at uh, playing the name <laughs> game there, Tack. Uh, but you, you had a you had a good and strong initial run. I give you that. Yeah, four out of twelve is not bad. Four out of twelve is not bad by any bat batting average. 
Marquis says, I've been thinking about this season and may have remarked that even sympathetic characters are doing terrible things, challenging our instincts to root for them. This is a very solid vein of exploration and show, but not exactly news. In season two, the Hound tells Sansa, Stannis is a killer. The Lannisters are killers. Your father was a killer. Your brother is a killer. Your sons will be killers someday. This world was built by killers. Of course, even if I type that, I will give massive credit to the show because it continues to shock me with the terrible things people do even after warming warning us to expect just that to build off the theme i've actually been thinking about the show and how it's forced me to feel sympathy for terrible people if even our heroes and protagonists can commit horrific crimes and surely even those most horrific people have some worth there's no joy in watching joffrey strangle no matter how much of a shit he was and now we have seen cersei who is hateful indeed be raped by her brother this was terrible to watch these people deserve no sympathy, and yet that feeling has evoked watching the tables turned on them. As terrible as Ned Stark's death was, and it's still the dramatic high point of the series for me, at least it was quick and professional, mirroring his first actions in the show, beheading the defector from the Night's Watch. We should remember that this is always who Jamie was, a brutal beast. Yes, in addition to someone who would intervene to protect Brienne, a comrade in arms. In the past, that brutality was wielded for Cersei, but now that he was feeling powerless and betrayed by the person he was closest to in the world, he decided to make her feel the same pain and betrayal. It's pretty messed up, even though even makes uh, Tywin and Tyrion's relationship look good in comparison, even as Tywin pulls the strings to ensure his son will be convicted. What do you think of that? Of which part of it? I mean, there's a lot there. All of just as a whole. <laughs> okay. I didn't disagree with anything you said. Okay. Um, do you think that, I mean, okay. So if, if basically total agreement, then we can move on. <laughs> okay. Uh, Inver M says, I'm unclear as to whom the Knights, the, the, the North belongs to. This is a question I think you had too. So we'll consider a little bit. In the last season of episode three, Tywin tells Tyrion that Roose Bolton will be warden of the North until an heir from Sansa comes of age. But as we see in the second episode of the season, Roose orders Locke to go on a hunt for Bran and Rickon, the rightful heirs of Winterfell. I'm not sure what pact he made with the Lannisters leading to the Red Wedding and learning of the two young Stark boys in existence would certainly set him back, but it's not as if the North was his to lose. He might have a dozen or so years, assuming everything goes as planned, until the boy quote-unquote comes of age, which I don't know what this means, puberty? I would think that he, Bolton, has had his own agenda since there's no indication that he would share his information with anyone and wants it kept secret in his inner circle. It's definitely intriguing to see how this story develops. They, Tywin, Walter Frey, and Boltons have to keep an eye on each other more so than any other threat. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that, uh, that's definitely true. Yeah, so what is, why is Roos concerned if ultimately the North is going to go to Tyrion and Sansa? Why is he so concerned with Bran and Rickon running amok? Uh, that I'm not sure about. I wonder... Yeah, because we again we don't know the terms and conditions. I wonder if he's afraid that Tywin would strip him of this if uh, if if he if founds out that he had let the two heirs of the North slip through his fingers. And also, it's do you think it's possible that Roose is playing the long game of well, maybe you know lots of things can happen. You know, Tywin could be or Tyrion could be infertile. Sansa could be infertile. Sansa might mm-hmm. die. Uh, you know, we might kill. It's like there's lots of things that can happen um, up north if you're a schemer. And I don't know. Maybe he's just playing the long game. Like having the north for a dozen years or so is better than not having it at all. And, you know, I can solidify my position up here and then who knows what will happen. Yeah, yeah. It could lead to bigger things for him. 
And if nothing else, I mean, it could lead to him being kind of the most powerful underneath the Starks rather than, you know, being kind of like the Boltons seem to be the ones that are kind of on the outs with the Starks perpetually. Yeah. So, you know, he could be the second most powerful house in the North. I don't know. I don't know what that's worth. Let's see. I think that's it because we had Janine's that we already covered in the main spoiler section or not the main spoiler section, the main section of the show. So uh, that's pretty much all we got for non-spoilers. Okay. And sounds you, good. you get dismissed from that. So I think that's it. That ends your involvement in this week's cast, Jim. All right. Well, it was fun. <laughs> if you'd like to send us some more feedback, you can do so at Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. And as always, you can follow Jim over at Twitter at baldmove, and you can follow me on Facebook.com slash baldmove. Had a lot of lively discussion on Facebook this week regarding the scene between Jamie and Cersei. Uh, I keep it very show watcher friendly. Uh, I make sure that there's not any spoilers for people to see. Uh, and just in case you're worried about that, and we're having a pretty good time. So, Hope to see you guys on there. It's another way you can, of course, support us. And I think that's all I got to say, Jim. All right. Take us out. Next week, we'll talk about the Oathbreaker that airs on Sunday night, or rather just Oathbreaker. And we will see you then, uh, unless you're staying on for the spoiler section, in which case I'll see you momentarily. But uh, if not, see you next weekend. I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. In the north, when it all comes down, my word is my bond, and my bond is my word. Valar to Harris, all men must serve. See, as a raven flies, and time slips by. Valar, my rulers, all men must die. All men must die. Hey, everybody, welcome to the spoiler section. I don't have a tremendous amount of spoilers to talk about, spoiler emails, and I do have my little tinfoil theory, but it's probably not as big and massive as the previous three have been. But uh, hey, it'll be a little fun sized edition. Kind of a controversial episode to uh, talk about, and I think that that uh, kind of uh, Twitter painted everybody into obsessing about the differences between the book and the show on that regard. I talked a lot about it in the main cast, but I did want to touch on one other thing for just us book readers. Compare and contrast Jamie's behavior with Cersei uh, in this in this instance versus her quote-unquote seduction of him and the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Chambers later on, a place where he's not feeling the love, a place where he thinks it's inappropriate and disrespectful. Obviously, Cersei is not able to overpower him, but you have to wonder if she were a man in this circumstance and Jamie was a woman and she was armed and armored, would she have had her way with him and would Jamie eventually have responded to her? I think you could argue yes. And how would that change the way we feel about that particular scene? One of the interesting things about George Martin is I think he he kind of deconstructs some of these issues involving misogyny and patriarchy. And we feel one way, you know, that Cersei is this wanton creature who uh, was begging, begging for it on the altar of her son's uh, a funeral. I don't know, his altar or his peer, his beard, whatever you call that thing, uh, in in the uh, most holy place in Westeros because Jamie forced herself, forced her, and she gave in to that. 
But Jamie resisted her because he's more powerful and able to do so in a place that he feels is sacred and worthy of honor and respect at a time where he wasn't feeling it. And we feel that he is a, uh, an upstanding, you know, moral, uh, virtuous character because of that. I think it's interesting and I don't think it's an accident that you have those two contrasts. Uh, and as I mentioned, I don't have, I don't think it's a huge departure from Jamie's character to portray him as a rapist because I don't believe that he would have, uh, stopped if Cersei had continued her protests in the books. I really don't. And he's already a child murderer and a, a kin slayer and a king slayer. It's like how, you know, people's like, well, he would never do that. I don't know that there's evidence that he wouldn't. And, you know, people say he had good reasons for killing King Eris and he had good reasons for trying to kill Bran. Okay. What if his reason was he really needed to feel whole and he needed to feel close? It was a selfish reason, but it's still a reason. Uh, in his mind, a good reason. And women just aren't in Westeros aren't accorded the same respect. I, I, I just don't buy that Jamie would not have raped his sister in the books. And I also don't buy that that book is an unambiguously full consent scene for, you know, a lot of reasons I mentioned on the cast that we're, we're literally in Jamie's mind. He could be rationalizing this. He could be an unreliable narrator. Um, you know, arousal doesn't apply imply consent. The fact that she eventually went around, uh, you know, came around to his way of thinking. Uh, in fact, you can see Cersei is kind of a serial rape victim, arguably other than the very first time she had sex with King Robert. None of it was consensual. She's very adept at ending the six, the sessions quickly, uh, to get them over with. You could argue that she's doing the same thing with Jamie in this instance, that this, you know, come on, do it quickly, quickly, just to get it over with. And so they don't get caught and spare the shame and indignity. I, you know, again, it doesn't tear my shit up if Jamie's a rapist or if he's not a rapist. Uh, I think it doesn't do a lot. He's, he, you know, most of the characters we root for are fairly despicable on some level. And that's okay. I don't think we have to do a lot of mental gymnastics and say, oh, well, you know, he loved his sister. He would never rape her. We can continue to root for him in a morally relative manner. And we don't have to say, well, rape was different than Westeros and that wasn't really considered rape because it it doesn't matter what's considered uh, in Westeros. Torture happens on a daily basis in Westeros. People are murdered. People are beheaded. People are raped. It doesn't really matter what they consider crime versus what we, the reader, considers as crime. I'm just saying we don't have to erect Jamie or the Hound or any of these characters to sainthood to say that we like them and they're interesting characters and we're quote unquote fans. It's odd to me that we as fans have to kind of whitewash these characters to be able to say that they're interesting characters that we like to read about and that, you know, we root for a guy like Jamie to change and to redeem himself because he tried to murder a child because he's done all these acts of, you know, self-hatred and maybe the rape of his sister is, one of those things, and it's going to be a turning point for his character. Obviously, their reuniting in King's Landing is a turning point for both of their characters because it's the moment where they both kind of take a long, hard look at each other and realize this isn't what I want. So, again, my biggest problem is I don't like hearing the director and the actors involved in the scene telling me that they were intending to go for something that 
did not make it onto the film. I, these are talented people that have so far known what they're doing. And I just don't like hearing that they botched their film craft. All right. So that's my two cents as a book reader, how I feel about the Jamie situation. Let's move on to Mike H who said he has a question in regards to Braun and what role you think the creators will give him in the show moving forward. As someone who've read the books, I like Braun's character a lot. And I think the show has done a great job in creating a minor character that steals all the scenes he's in. Do you think the show will follow the book, having him married off to the lollies of Stokeworth, given the predicament we find Tyrion in? In my opinion, this is basically writing him off the show for the foreseeable future. Or do you think they will keep him around in some capacity because he is so cool? I'd love to see him travel with Tyrion, especially in place of Penny, but that seems very unlikely and hard to put off, pull off. Or maybe they'll plan to have him befriend Jamie and his replacing Ill and Payne in Episode 2 in terms of teaching him to fight, uh, as, as him teaching him to uh, fight implied. Although this might be hard with Cersei having so much hate for anything Tyrion related. That is a fantastic question. Let me take your theories one by one. Will they go forth with the lollies of Stokeworth, uh, having him uh, father a child, uh, naming it Tyrion? Hmm. I don't, uh, I, I don't think so because Dr- Bronn's too good of a character to waste as you know, every few chapters from Cersei's POV we get, there's little provocation. And then there's the intrigue uh, that, you know, she sends some cat's paw because she's so clever to kill him and ends up getting hurt, them killed. And the lady ends up getting sent to Kyburn. I just don't see that them pulling that off, even in a compressed way that they're dealing with Feaster Crows and Dance for Dragons. So I just don't see that happening. Him traveling with Tyrion would be awesome because him and Tyrion have really good chemistry, but, and there's a hint of that, that maybe, let's say that maybe Braun gets thrown into jail too, because we've already seen that he's a suspect for this crime. Maybe when we see the trial that he'll be implicated and he'll be put into cells as well. Uh, we know that Tyrion gets loose at some point and, you know, does a lot of things that I'm not going to talk about because I know there's some non book readers, uh, among us that, uh, uh, like to be adventurous, and I want to preserve as many of this potential spoilers as I can. But what if he visits uh, Bronzel and springs him loose? That would be pretty interesting because you know Bronze got a fall from grace for him to stick his neck out for Tyrion, and having him be condemned, you know, condemned along with Tyrion would certainly qualify as that. I really like the idea of him continuing to be the Sir Illyn Payne character. Uh, and it also would be interesting to see Jamie's progression as a redeemable character, uh, set opposed to Bronn, who's kind of an irredeemable shit. I mean, love him. Great character, but you know, he doesn't stick out his neck for his, fa- for his friends, uh, any more than he has to, or no more than they pay him to. And I think that'd be a very good chemistry to see Jamie as this soiled knight trying to figure out his place in the world and what honor means to him and what duty means to him uh, alongside his amoral sellsword, who's a smart ass. And they're both they're both smart asses. So I think there'd be some fantastic chemistry there, too. So I it seems to me from the dialogue they set forth in Tyrion's cell that the second option there of him running off of Tyrion 
is more likely than the third option, but the third option is good too. And I just don't, I, I don't see them wasting screen time establishing all the Cersei plotting that, that, that makes, uh, uh, that that makes the whole Bronn thing stay relevant in the books. And we still don't really get Bronn. We just hear of Bronn's doing. So I, I don't like that at all. Okay. Now we're getting to the tinfoil segment. Uh, this week's probably going to be a little bit shorter, but I always think that. I thought last week's would be shorter too, and it ended up being 20 minutes long. So we talked about, uh, you know, we talked about the, the, some of the more solid theories. We've talked about some of the more out there theories. Uh, like Roose Bolton's uh, vamp- vampiric origins, perhaps. This is going to be kind of like in the middle. It's more speculation, informed speculation about the prophecies that Danny's have been involved in throughout the books. Because this is the stuff that I just recently finished Dance with Dragons a couple months ago. And they're the ones that I thought were most interesting, fully catching up to the books. Because a lot of things that I thought were just kind of written off involving her and those prophecies, and I still sometimes do, because they haven't spent a lot of time in the show talking about these prophecies. That doesn't mean they're not important, but it probably means it's not as important as maybe I think. But anyway, a lot of people assumed that when uh, Miri Mazdur the Magi that did the blood magic on Cal Drogo to left him a vegetable that snatched the life out of uh, Danny's unborn child that accidentally quickened the eggs she was carrying into the funeral fire and gave birth to the three dragons. Danny asked her, uh, when will Drogo be as he was after she had done this? And she realized that Cal Drogo was a vegetable and the Magi replied, when the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, said Mary Mazdur, when the seas go dry and the mountains blow in the wind like leaves, when your womb quickens again and you bear a living child, then he will return and not before. A lot of people assumed that this was just a basically the same as me saying, well, it'll happen when pigs fly or it'll happen the seventh Sunday of never. Basically, it's an impossibility that Cal Drogo is never coming back. And also with the implication that now Danny's infertile and won't be able to bear children, which is an interesting predicament for someone trying to establish a new ruling dynasty. But then A Dance with Dragons came out. And let's consider this one by one. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, well, Quentin Martell was sent on a secret mission by Prince Doran of Dorne, to treat with Danny and form a marriage alliance with her. He's literally uh, in another vision that, uh, or a prophecy or a warning that the mysterious character Quaith gives Danny. He's referred to as the son's son. He's the son of Prince Doran. Their family seal is a giant son with a spear por- uh, uh, piercing through it. Westeros is, of course, uh, West of Essos, which is where Danny's at. So from her perspective, perspective, the sun did rise from the West, journeyed to Marine in the East and Quentin died there. Uh, the sun thus setting. So that's one part of the prophecy that arguably, and again, maybe it's not a prophecy. Maybe it's the same as pigs fly, but when you see a pig sprout wings, you start thinking, Hmm, maybe this isn't a mere proverb. The second, when the seas go dried, Let's talk about that. Uh, in the last chapter of Dance with Dragons, before the epilogue, 
It's about Danny being back in the Dothraki Sea. She's found herself to her own private dragonstone. She's wandering around, and note what she says. She goes, though she walked through a green kingdom, it was not the deep, rich green of the summer. Even here, autumn had made its presence felt, and winter would not be far behind. The grass was paler than she remembered, a wan, sickly green on the verge of going yellow. And then would come brown. The grass was dying. Remember, this vast stretch of prairie, or savanna, or whatever you want to call it, this tall grass... In the books, is called the Dothraki Sea. When the seas go dry, we're literally seeing this Dothraki Sea dry up, turn brown. Winter's coming. That is the second phase. The sun has risen in the west and set in the east. The seas have gone dry. The mountains blow in the wind like leaves. Is this potentially a reference to the mighty pyramids of marine? And their subsequent crumbling and sacking and they're burning and they're on fire. And there's this massive clouds of smoke coming from them after the dragons are loosed and begin to rampage. Could it be that the mountains are blowing away like leaves? Uh, Could this be a reference to the mountain Sir Gregor Clegane uh, and the end that he meets? Although that is ambiguous and if you're a subscriber to the Clegane bowl theory which we might talk about here in a in, in a few weeks uh maybe that is a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled when your womb quickens again one thing that's uh Danny suffers from when she's out here she eats some berries uh she has a lot of vomiting and i think you know diarrhea uh, some people think it's because she's coming down at the pale mare. I don't think that. I think she's got eaten these berries and they've done something terrible to her. And she has some visions uh, in in response to eating these berries. But one thing is that she gets her moon's blood again. Uh, or some people think that she's actually suffered a miscarriage. That somehow uh, having sex with Dario uh, or uh, is ta- is oh shit I can't pronounce this guy's name. Uh, you know what? What do they call? Uh, there's someone that calls them all like uh, who are or whatever. Uh, Ralu. I like how the Northerns call uh, uh, Ralor the Ralu. Um, Hazu. Yeah, Hazu's on Hazu. Uh, maybe one of those got her pregnant, and then this was a uh, a miscarriage. Regardless, it seems like her. Her reproductive systems are coming back to life. So when she bears a living child, if she bears a living child in future books, this would arguably make every bit of this pig's fly statement come true. Then the final thing would be for him, uh, Drogo, to return. What the hell can that possibly mean? Are we literally going to see the some form of Drogo returning? I don't think so. He's been burnt up, and uh, Ghost Drogo is not going to be much help. Uh, will she name her child Drogo and somehow unite all the Kalasars uh, uh, around him as the new Cal? Is this a metaphor? Uh, we know that uh, the old crones at the womb of the world, uh, at the capital, and at the capital city of uh, Dothraki. Uh, proclaimed uh, her son as to be the stallion that mounts the world. We also know she's found in the last book 
with a giant fierce ass dragon by a big uh, Kalasar. One of the Kalasars uh, run by uh, Jocko, uh, one of the blood riders of Caldrogo. Someone who Danny swore vengeance against uh, and his lieutenant in in the the game in Game of Thrones, the first book. If she is able to reunite all the Kalasars around that and her dragons and herself, that is going to be big trouble where she's got the Unsullied and she'd have the Dothraki. And if she can find the ships, uh, that would be big trouble for, for Westeros. Uh, could it be uh, symbolic of her finally taming Drogon? A lot of people think that because one of the last things that happens in the book is Drogon seems to respond to her in a way that he has not, you know, she's, he's, he lets her ride him. Uh, she finally is able to tame him in the fighting pits and their relationship has kind of changed substantively by the end of the book. Maybe that's symbolic of her finally figuring out how to master these dragons or at least this particular dragon. It's something interesting to think, think about. There's other prophecies involving, um, Danny as well. The one that immediately springs to mind is the prophecies in the house of the undying. And there's a lot of stuff she sees there in the vision. And again, this got kind of short shrift in the show, probably because if you show a banquet of corpses toasting a king with a wolf's head, it just gives away too much. You see that and it's like, oh, Red Wedding. Uh, as soon as they start talking about a wedding amongst the Starks and with the direwolves, and you can see all the YouTube videos putting two and two together, it would just be uh, a spoiler that shows perpetuating on itself. But there's a lot of things that are forward-looking prophecies that I think are very interesting uh, and kind of tell us about some of the other theories that people have about heads of the dragon, for example. Some people are are clinging to this Aegon being legit. I don't know because there's a lot of threes that happen in this vision, and three of them – it mentions a blue-eyed king with a red sword in his hand who casts no shadow – a cloth dragon amidst a cheering crowd, a great stone beast flying from a smoking tower, breathing a shadow fire. These are mentioned under the header heading of mother of dragons, slayer of lies. Now the first one, the blue eyed King with a red sword in his hand, who casts no shadow is obviously Stannis. It's a good physical description of him. He casts no shadow because his shadow has been set free to kill Rinley. And, uh, uh, who's the guy that was the Castilian of Storms in? I want to say Pim Pim Pimrose or Pimley. Anyway, that's obviously Stannis, and a, she's a slayer of lies that she's going to demonstrate that he is not Azora High. He's not the prince that was promised the way Melisandre is marketing him to be. The second, a cloth dragon amidst a cheering crowd. Uh, Quaith mentions in one of her warnings to uh, Danny. I'm going to read this here. Glass candles are bur- no, excuse me. Glass candles are burning. Soon comes the pale mare, and after her the others. Kraken and dark flame, lion and griffin, the sun, sun and the mummer's dragon. Trust none of them. Remember the undying. Beware the perfumed seneschal. Pale mare was the disease that came and uh, smote marine. Kraken, uh, probably Victorian Greyjoy. Uh, the dark flame, lion and griffin. Uh, we know the Griffin is probably John Connington, who's bringing Aegon uh, to Westeros. Dark Flame, 
Uh, one of the popular theories is Aegon, if he is is actually a Targaryen, is going to be one of the Blackfire Targaryens. Now, if you don't know about the, who the Blackfires are, the Blackfires are a clan of legitimized bastards that one of the old Targaryen kings legitimized on his deathbed. And they have been the bane of House Targaryen ever since. They have led multiple rebellions that uh, was a was killed a, killed a lot of a lot of people and jeopardized the ruling dynasty on several occasions. And it would have some kind of dramatic irony that when a true Targaryen regains the throne, um, it's this mummer's dragon. And we know that Varys, who is one of the ones that put this plot in motion with Ilio, used to be a mummer. Uh, a cloth dragon, you know, is, is something that the mummers would use in their puppet shows. So it's seen, saying that Griff or slash Aegon is a fake Targaryen. Either he's just some kid that they've grown up to, to, to make think he's a Targaryen, although he does have some Targaryen features, or he's one of these Blackfire illegitimate Targaryens going to cause problems for Danny. I like that theory because as much as Varys says, you know, he's been trained from birth to be the ultimate king, there's some danger signs I see in his characterization and how impetuous he is. So I think that's a solid theory. The one thing I don't understand under the Slayer of Lies is the great stone beast flying from a smoking tower, breathing a shadow fire. Some people say that's another John Connington reference taking over the Griffin Tower, uh, his family seat. And, you know, we know that there's stone gargoyles in the shape of griffins and it doesn't say a stone dragon. It says stone beast. But to me, that's double dipping on this prophecy. If the mummer's dragon, the cloth dragon amidst a cheering crowd represents Aegon and Varys and Ilios pot, John Connington's already uh, part of that. So why would you have him? Uh, why would you have him be in that prophecy twice? And less breathing a shadow fire is significant, and that is extra information about Aegon's, the nature of Aegon's threat, him being a Blackfire. Some people say that's a reference to Melisandre's claim that, uh, that, that the stone dragons can be awoken on Dragonstone, and that somehow there's, there's going to be awakened with one of the horns. I don't know, because if that, that seems like another double dipping on the Stannis route. I'm very confused to what this stone beast belching black fire from a smoking tower is going to end up being. And if you have some theories on that, I'd love to hear them. Uh, the next group of three is Mother of Dragons, Bride of Fire. And it talks about her, the people that she's, you know, bride in, in Kate's people she's going to marry. And the first one talks about her silver horse given to her by, Dro uh, by Drogo at their wedding. Clearly represents her first husband. The second one is... Uh, mentioned as a corpse at the prow of a ship, eyes bright and his dead face smiling sadly. The best theory I have, because some people say, well, that's Griff Connington and he's got the uh, grayscale and it's talking about the grayscale plague. Um, that's another uh, possibility where the stone, stone beast uh, belching black fire is that that's Griff Connington bringing the grayscale plague to Westeros and that's going to be uh, significant in later books. But I actually think this represents Victorian. We know in his mind that he wants to marry Daenerys, and the vision describes him in the same terms as it does Khal Drogo, who was her husband. 
Is it possible? I mean, I never gave much credit to the theory that Victorian is going to be successful in wedding Danny. Um, but maybe he will. And the fact that, you know, so why, so why do we say this? You know, he's a corpse to proud of a ship. Well, proud of a ship, obviously, he's captain of the Ironborn fleet. He's going to be right there. Uh, they say that uh, uh, Smiling Sadly is a play on Greyjoy. Uh, joy is a smile and sad is the grayness. Greyjoy put it together. Victorian Greyjoy. Uh, eyes bright in his dead face. Some people think that that's like some kind of white description, uh, but also could be the uh, some people theorize that he's actually been dead and he's been brought back to life by the uh, red priest that's that he found floating amidst the wreckage and who restored his arm uh, 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 to life anyway. The one that was infected from uh, the battle that he partook before he went off on the quest to find Danny. Um, again, I don't see Danny marrying this guy. Maybe this is just her potential husbands or pretenders of husbands. Um, but it does link it does link her with the with the bride of fire to to marriage. And the third one is the you know one we talked about a blue flower growing from a chink of in a wall of ice. Obviously, we think that's Jon Snow, and that points to a somewhat the Song of Ice and Fire story being the story of Jon and Danny getting together through apparently marriage to start the Targaryen rule again. I like that. I don't know that I like how Victor- Victorian, Victor- Victorian fits in there, but that I do like the way it ends and I like the way it begins. I mean, obviously Cal Drogo, obviously Jon Snow, it's the middle guy's identity and how he fits into the story that we don't really know. Maybe his purpose is just to bring the dragon binding technology that, that horn of dragons uh, to Danny f- to help her tame them or help people that are not her, not mothers of dragon tame them. You know, we know the dragon has three heads Drogo wasn't one of those heads. He was dead before the dragons arise. It doesn't stand to reason that Victorian has to be one of those heads. I personally believe it's going to be John, Danny, and Tyrion. So that's it. That's the consideration I want to go over with uh, Danny's prophecies this week. Uh, hope you found it entertaining. Hope you have some ideas. Uh, if you got some ideas of uh, theories you'd like me to consider next that you've personally enjoyed, I actually had a really interesting theory emailed me by one of our fellow fans about how the seven books in the A Song of Ice and Fire, theory, uh, uh, I don't know, you can want to call it a tri- trilogy, I'm not sure what you call it, but a saga, um, stand for the seven aspects of the gods of Westeros. That's an interesting theory, and it's pretty well-researched. It's very long, so I might do that later on when I kind of run out of material. Um, it kind of reminded me there's a... Uh, a pretty old tinfoil theory about the seven Stark children representing the seven aspects uh, of the uh, godhood, the smith and the warrior and the father, so forth and so on, and who all those are. That is pretty interesting. I don't know that it's very true, but it is interesting. We might cover that. But anyway, I hope it's been entertaining for you. If you've got stuff you'd like to comment on this week's tinfoil or this week's spoiler section or like to talk about uh, the controversial rape scene between Jamie and Cersei and how you feel that changes the character or, or, or doesn't, please send that into Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you and we'll talk to you Sunday. See you next week.